This is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, it's me, Kaya, Miles, and DR talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week. The news that went underreported with regard to race, justice, and equity. Then I sit down with one and only Daniel Hatcher to talk about his new book, Injustice Inc., how America's justice system commodifies children and the poor. Y'all, I learned so much from this book. Everybody needs to read it right now. Can't wait for you to hear this interview. We're going to, it's like inform my organizing, learned a ton. So can't wait for you to hear this. Here we go. Family, happy spring and welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles D. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Pharaoh Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. We're recording on the first day of spring. It's the spring equinox, a time for change, a time for evolution. And Donald Trump is about to evolve himself into the penitentiary, everybody. Oh, Yay. Lord, today. <laughs> You know that's is not it real though. Is that real? You know, yes. It's not real. No. It's not, You're not about real. About to make a fool out of me, all excited. Yeah. <laughs> I've grown so, better these last few years. Donald Trump posted on social media. I don't even know what social media Donald Trump. Ha- I, I don't. I don't even know where he lives. They've the reinstated him to all of these different things, right? To all the they things. restored his accounts. It is so he posted that he's going to be arrested Tuesday of this week. Um, And the claim, this claim has come out while still a New York prosecutor is considering charging Donald Trump in connection with hush money he paid to an adult, he paid to an adult film actress, Stormy Daniels. Is this is, we're talking about the former president of the United States. So in the midst of all the other January 6th stuff, he also has a, he got cases, y'all. He got another pending case <laughs> around Stormy Daniels. So he's entangled in several criminal investigations. Um, but the case related to Daniels is the longest running, goes all the way back to 2016. So on his platform, Truth Social, gag, on Saturday morning, he said that there were some illegal leaks that indicated he would be arrested on Tuesday. I and love how like say, honest everybody call- and thorough yeah. you are about this. Like this is the whole thing is trash. Like this is trash. <laughs> he th- that man just told the people I'm about to get arrested on Tuesday. Y'all need to protest. Y'all need to tear the place up. This is look. This you're all like nice and legal and thorough and thoughtful about this. This dude is is uh, inciting the next insurrection around his rightful accountability for payments to his porn star mistress. Come on, y'all. This okay. is this is the worst of America. Okay, you had to put you had to listen, you had to put that stink on it. Uh. Is, that is what's happening. So my my question is <laughs> my question is, do you think that this is really is he clever enough that this is really gonna happen? Mind you all, we're recording this on Monday. So this is either Christmas Eve or <laughs> <laughs> or not. Or, or, or New Year's. Or New Year's. Right. So are we either, is he either saying this in order to show the people who are prosecuting him how much power he has to maybe uh, make them think again about doing legal action and be like, oh, this is what he'll do. We're scared. Or do we think that he's not that clever and it's probably actually going to happen and he's just wailing? You know, I'm like wondering if he's just like, 
uh, like poking them back. I think what makes me nervous about the whole thing is that this thing is now taking place in New York City, right? So he would have to appear in a Manhattan court. And so I would assume the, bo- the best visual is a protest at that court, which is where we live. Let me so, tell you something. Th- <laughs> Ain't nobody scared of that. I'll go to Capitol Grill. I sure will. And <laughs> be right there. This is my turf. Y'all ain't about to chump me out of my turf. Nope. I don't not care. Insurrect this. I'll be right there with my chopsticks, eating food, and watching him get arrested. And I wish y'all would. He's not gonna he he is not gonna perp walk it through the thing like regular oh. people. He's gonna go in the back door to attorney's office and blah blah blah. Here's the thing, right? Like this is it would be different if his first indictment was around something really substantive like you know, the Georgia election stuff or the documents at Mar-a-Lago or the insurrection on January 6th. But this is this is highly problematic because it's, it is against the law. It's like campaign finance laws or whatever. It's a sort of a tricky case. But this is like personal stuff, right? And he is using this to rally his base to be like, look at these people. They are persecuting me at every turn. And this is why I am the right choice to lead this country because we got to take America back, make it great again or whatever his crapola is. And so like the Republicans are using this. Kevin McCarthy, like all of the people are like, this is terrible. This is an abuse of power, blah, 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 blah. And this is all rallying his base to get at him, right? Um, the Republicans are putting pressure on Ron DeSantis. They're like, you better say something. Like, this is a moment for him. And, you know, I think the Manhattan DA's office is not fully understanding the role that they might be playing in inadvertently giving him an opportunity to reamass some power. Right. And but you they, know, they, through who we, just in January 6th, part of what we discovered, I mean, we already knew this, but a lot of NYPD were on January 6th and our Trump supporters. So I'm all, again, it's like this, somebody called National Guard. I don't don't feel safe. I do not feel safe. Come on, come on. Now, if I were in D.C. where I knew how to get down, yes, but you know. It is also a new hood for me. I'll say one of the things that I am reminded of is just how much of a frenzy Trump had us in at the height of Trump. Like, this would have been wall-to-wall coverage. We would, like, like when Trump was really Trumping, right. it was like, so it, even the idea that he could say this, and I saw, it, I saw it in passing on Twitter, was just like a breath of fresh air that this was not, like, the only thing people were talking about. Because y'all know, that was, there was a moment where, like, every time Trump would do something, it was, like, the only thing in the room. I would, I, I always think about those four years as like the American, you know, the American dream. I think of it as like the American fever dream. And I do think out of all, if there's like any quote unquote good that the Trump cycle did for me as an individual was it, it thickened my skin to distraction and it kind of, and, it, and, and made me kind of create my own intellectual priority. So it wasn't just, the president said something or this is happening. So I take it seriously. It just did. That's just not how things work, like work in my head anymore, because during Trump's height, Trump's height, you just couldn't take everything he said seriously or you're going well, to go. You're going to. In part because he lied like a zillion yeah, and a half times. Precisely. <laughs> precisely. So you just couldn't do that. I hmm. think every but starting today, though, it's going to be. Yeah, we, we are gearing back now. up. Yeah, like this is, it's going to be on TV all day long, starting today. So 
We'll see. Child, let me go ahead and pay my cable bill. Um, I thought you were going down the Capitol Grill tomorrow. Come on. I mean, it's going to be something. It's going to be something. Might be small, might be big. I was talking about, I was talking about today. Oh. <laughs> Christmas Eve. That's, that's, that's Christmas Day activities. <laughs> Christmas Eve activities is I'm going to pay my, I'm watch some CNN and see who's on there now. An R&B legend. Legend. A soul, a soul legend, Bobby Caldwell, has passed away. Um... He, you know, a beautiful statement came out the um the day that um the day that he passed away, letting um letting us know. And I think the the agreed on analysis or uh, feeling amongst at least black folks is that he is will live in perpetuity as the person who sang with so much soul that you could not believe that he was a white man when you saw him. And I love and. I, of course, we all love that. We all love that song. But then also, of course, when people have passed away, you kind of dig into stuff. His common tribe called Quest. That he there's so many people who have sampled his music, and I did not know that his music was the backbone to so many of my already favorite hip hop songs. Common's delight. Oh my goodness! Um, just such and, a beautiful. And he 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 was like super supportive of rappers sampling his song. Right, like I saw some of the coverage this week where he was like, "Oh my god!" I guess Common called to ask him if he could sample, and he was like, "I would be honored if you if you sampled my song." Like, which is not usually what you hear. It's an innovative take because you have to know that sampling is literally giving your song another life to another generation. Yeah. And it also shows the humility that 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 Bobby had when it came to his work, because at some point you have to understand that your work no longer belongs to you. And it becomes another hue for artists to play with. And it becomes another color for artists to play with when they're paintings. And that's part of the legacy of hip hop music and soul music and, and black music and electronic music. And it's just so cool that he that he knew about that. I I saw um, a video of him um, in in older years um, singing, and he that voice was still voicing that. Oh, let me t- let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I I got a man, but a, a, a Bobby Caldwell type of white man coming sing, singing to me like that, crooning. Wait a minute. Wait Hold a minute. On. Wait a minute. Hold not on. you. Not you advertising for some blue eyed soul in your I'm life. Just, I'm, I'm just saying. You, I'm on Team Sunny for the record. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would never. In a, an alternative parallel universe. <laughs> okay. If okay. I was still, if I was still on the market, I would definitely say, okay, I can open it up to. You just gotta have soul. The Bobby Caldwell of it all. I love it. So my news is, um, y- you know, I've I've been I've been going to the the garbage bin for my news for the last two weeks so maybe i'll maybe i'll do something <laughs> a little bit more elevated next week but you know when 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 trash calls i must answer so f- the, this root art this root article that i put in is about little Nas x how he apologizes to the um the, com- the trans community after sending a controversial tweet so so many different points that i wanted to like hit so hopefully i'll hit them all if i don't yell at me but the original post was Lil Nas X posts a picture of a woman and then says, hey, I transitioned um, or the surgery, the surgery went well. He receives backlash because it kind of trivializes the, 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 the trajectory and the narrative of and, and, and also just 
makes makes a mockery is, a, is the best way I can think of of the narrative of um tra- of a lot of trans folks um experiences and then people also connected to this to the People magazine um uh, article that he has or the um photo shoot that he has where he's pregnant and he's like I, like he's 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 a man but he's pregnant and it kind of makes a mockery out of that because that's the actual situation that many trans men um uh are are in and that's just a that's a that's a regular trans ex- regular trans experience and him making a mockery of it kind of creeps continues to other it instead of trying to make people who aren't maybe as privy to trans experiences um see it as normal or see it as another mode of life but when you kind of make a mockery of it it's like it's, it becomes a gag so that happens. We all make mistakes. I've said some really silly things as well. Uh, just, I'm sure yesterday. I was going to say when I was younger, but I'm like, I'm sure yesterday. I said some silly things as well and thought that they were jokes. So he gets backlash. He apologizes. Then somebody who's of the trans community comes back and says, hey, gr- cool, you apologize, but you're also a socially and financially powerful person so a verbal apology from somebody with as much power that you have in the community really doesn't mean much so you should actually apologize with your wallet and with your social status meaning you should donate to a mutual aid trans fund you should uh donate to uh uh do do something beyond just just sending out a tweet about it really support really support it really support the trans community he responds with girl eat my I can't say the other thing. Eat my, eat my, eat my booty. Eat my booty. Booty. Yeah. So he responds with that. That I, my jaw was on the floor because not only was I like, okay, you can't, you shouldn't say that's disrespectful. But then also I'm like really trying to like map out how do you think that you apologize to somebody? How do you think that you that you apologize to a community? And then you then go back and actually attack a member of the same community. Like, that made no, absolutely no sense to me. And it made me see how just uh, disingenuous the original uh, apology was. It really disappointed me. I'm going to be honest with you, not a huge Little Nas X fan, I, but I definitely think he is great for the children and great for the um, community, or maybe I should say was. But it made me really sad. I think the other thing that made me even more sad is as somebody you know my background is I've written for New York Times and Vice and you know Essence and blah 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 I could not find anybody interested in me pushing back on that last response um even as I was researching things people were so quick to cover he made a mistake and apologize nobody was interested in me pushing back and saying on a on on a on a on a Twitter account that has millions of followers, he then humiliated a Black trans woman just after he apologized. That was just peculiar to me. And the the cynical part of me wanted to think that, oh, nobody's interested in me hold, like holding accountable this this celebrity because what if one one day he could be used to uh, recreate their stardom and and give them more views or give them more clicks. It was just it was just static silence when I was trying to push those things back or just clear reject rejection knows. And I'm and just me doing the math in my head on social. I'm like, well, we know this will get views. We know people are talking about it. So this is actually just um, an attack on dissenting content and critical content when it comes to celebrity, which is a a, a thing that I've been seeing and I've been talking about a lot that I just been seeing 
seeing happen more and more and more. Like, where can people really distinct around celebrity, specifically Black culture and Black celebrity right now? Um, I wanted to bring this to the podcast. I, again, anytime I see something that happens that is transphobic, I love to talk about it because I think that inside of the Black community, we need to continue to talk about uh, tra- transness and transphobia and really start normalizing that conversation because that's how you gut it and that's how we that's how we transcend it so yeah i wanted to bring this all to you what do you think did you see it did you have more than a life than i did and you missed it what happened you know the thing that i think confuses me when when megastars do stuff like this is just how many people are required to participate to pull it off right like you can't like the original outfit and moment like it you the, the, you don't just like stumble into this moment like the photo, all this stuff. So, so I was hopeful that he'd have more critical friends, and not critical as in like constructive criticism, but like who understood critical stuff around gender and identity, because he's been such at the forefront of owning his own gayness. Um, owning his own and what? Twitter, gayness. Gayness, oh, gayness. I heard a what? completely different word. Okay, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> now you were like, we can say that on the pod now. <laughs> <laughs> gayness. Yes, I got it. Thanks. Uh, and I, it's so interesting too. Like, it's like the human part of it where I could see him being like, you know, somebody popped off on me on Twitter and I did da 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 da. And it's still like, you have so many more followers. And this is like, this just brings on a swath of people to hate somebody who just has way less social standing. So I left it all just disappointed. That's I don't have anything deep to say besides I'm like, come on, Lil Nas X, you've had such a good run. I'm disappointed in this. And doesn't it feel like we don't have like celebrity? We heart like we hardly have celebrities anymore. It just feels like we don't have artists and public intellectuals anymore. To me, it feels like we have mascots. And I think that these moments really highlight the fact that we have mascots because if you were in the position to embrace your queerness and you and you got there because of something that was deeper than kind of a shallow identity politic, you would probably have something critical to say or some deep reflection or some advancement when this situation happens. But when you get there, just because people need feel like they need a mascot for their identity team then you get really disappointed during times like this because there's just no depth beyond the 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 identity portion i hate to blame this on generational issues but i think that is part to blame here i you know growing up with janet jackson knew i just I feel like partly growing up pop music in that time, it was the evolution of pop mu- of black pop music. I would say there was more community in terms of accountability around that artist, whether it was Prince, whether I just, I feel like there was more accountability. There was um, even more desire from that artist to want to make a community proud. I mean, I'm not talking about like Albie sure, but you know, I think for oh, a large <laughs> Hey, 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 that's my fellow Mount Vernonite. Don't don't throw shade in on the money. Of course he's from Mount Vernon. Of course he's from Mount Vernon. That's right. But all that but all that to say, I think there was there was a certain attention p- paid to making your community proud and like all the things that that means. 
I completely disagree, Yara. Well, well, let me let me finish. Let me finish. I also feel like part of it is capitalism was a lot different growing up than it is now. Social media, capitalism, how so much is a reflection of what you have, how big your platform is, and being credentialing yourself to speak on things which you actually have no insight, education whatsoever, right? So now everybody is an expert on everything. And so I feel like part of this is Lil Nas X, whose name is Montero, named after a Mitsubishi Montero, who grew up in the projects, is 23 years old, was gay coming up in who knows where Georgia. Part of this is he has his own set of traumas, which we know we understand but now he's in a community, like I'm finding that his one of his best friends is Miley Cyrus. Like if that is your community of people that you're around and therefore are understanding levers of accountability from, you're actually not accountable to anybody, right? If you're not seeing yourself as like, you know, trying to trying to make the black community proud through who you are and what all that means, especially for him being queer, but you're just out there being who who you want to be, no accountability to anybody. You can say what you want, talk crazy to whomever. I just see, I see this as a, a larger, a larger reflection of what culture means now in this country, of what communication now means in this country, of, of what engagement looks like in this country and how it's, it's just more acceptable to be disrespectful. And it's more acceptable to say, this is how I feel. And I don't care how you, what you feel about it. I think so I don't I think, know. It's a long, convoluted way of saying, you know, like I think I think there are a lot of things at play here, and I and yes, I put a re- responsibility on him, but I also just think it is the 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 hurricane in which he is growing up in. I I agree with you on communication and engagement being very different. Um, I don't necessarily agree on the accountability thing. I just think that people didn't have access to to pop stars you know, back in the day, the way they do now. And half of the pop stars that we love are as crazy as everybody else is. We just didn't know because they weren't tweeting. They weren't, they didn't say everything that was on their mind. And we, we, if they did, we didn't have access to it. Right. And so I think part of the problem with these high levels of engagement and no filters and complete and total access to people is you get all of their stuff. You get the good, the bad, and the ugly. You get them being young and making mistakes. You get them not understanding what real apology looks like. For me, like this is so interesting because, like, you know, the last thing in this article, Miles, is, was somebody saying, How come all of this vitriol is not directed to the lawmakers who are actually passing these anti trans laws, right? Like, the burden that we put on, a burden and responsibility, whatever it is, I guess if you get the fame, you also get the responsibility. But, like, we are, we are much quicker to go after, um, you know what I what I sometimes feel are just young people out here being young, right? I, pu- I push um, back on that because I think that you know this is going to sound hella able or excuse me, this is going to sound extremely ableist. But most people can yell at Lil Nas X and say you got that wrong and do and and do the other thing too. And I, I felt like that was such I, a. 
I agree. I agree that they can. But if you look on their Twitter accounts, they're not out blasting Ron DeSantis. They're not out doing whatever, whatever. They are saving it all for like we eat. We eat our own. We go to the places that are closest for us to attack. And like there's not a coordin- There's not always a coordinated effort to go after the people causing us pain. And I'm not saying Lil Nas X is off the hook by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I'm yeah. saying we need to be doing both and. And it's too easy for us to. I guess attack the celebrities than to do the other stuff. I think they're all everyone's living in that same bubble though, where there isn't pers- necessarily perspective on that. It again, I, I, it is it's being cute. This is what it's about. It's about being cute and being seen. Do you it, are you getting cookies for knowing who Ron DeSantis is? Hail to the no. You being cute, you being out here on the scene, and and then it's a conversation with and amongst folks that aren't necessarily paying attention to these greater issues. And I'm sounding like a real auntie here, but I think that's part of what it you is on like the internet. Queen well, I, auntie. I, I, I was, <laughs> I've talked about this with Deray a lot. Like I do, I do think there's an interesting flattening of people who are in the public, and I think that yeah. when, when we think about celebrity and fame, and I think about it a lot, and I think about it's just one of the things that fascinate me and that like in my work I just like excavate like when I think about it there is a flattening of celebrity right now but when celebrity first started television is not that new having a personal television in your home is not that new you had different silos of uh of of celebrity and in order to maybe collapse two types of celebrities. So AKA be a public intellectual or be a political leader and be a sports star. You have to kind of earn your stripes to be able to do that thing. Um, If you wanted to be little Richard and you wanted to be a rock star and be on stage and you also wanted to um, say something uh, towards the black community or say something towards political standings, you got to earn your stripes and do, and and do, and do that. Now we're in this like, like, um, homogenous, like, weird thing where everybody is everything. So sometimes you'll have somebody who's a makeup uh, influencer who is great and pretty and whatever, but then she maybe discovered that about colorism yesterday and now all of a sudden we're listening to her talk about colorism and because everything's so flat we could really be contending with her views on colorism and the public sphere for longer than it's than it's needed and then to your to your point is we can be talking about political lawmakers and little Nas x but on the internet and how media is made all those things feel just as important as each other because they're all happening at the same volume at the same time and sometimes it could feel like a little Nas x because he's your same identity he's closer to you more of your friends like him and and he's playing play at your party, that could feel more intimate and important than a political lawmaker because how culture and music touches yeah. us. So yeah. turn off your television. <laughs> and my Miles is being right because Twitter has been all in an uproar about white passing and white presenting. Because somebody tweeted it, and it is we are in hell on Twitter about it. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just we, it's just interesting. So as much as we talk about like where Baldwin might have got it wrong, or where you know the the big thing that I was glad that people started talking about was Alice Walker's anti semitism and and in places where she has been transphobic. The, the there was other places where it came to theory that like Alice Walker gained her gained her stripes, which is the reason why we even care what Alice Walker thinks you know um 
which which is which is totally different than what I think is going on now. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. about banking and it is not even new news but as we think about uh, SVB collapsing and in it's also taking down credit Suisse if you haven't seen I don't know we talked about this a little bit but one of the ways that they are saying SVP like one of the reasons why it collapsed was because of the wokeness on the board and then you look at the board of SVP and it is all white people but one of the Republican lines has been like they were so focused on diversity efforts that like they weren't focused on running the business and definitely just a racist trope. And then I am on Twitter and I come across the only black CEO in banking, this this um, article about him. And I am sufficiently intrigued. He at one point was at a party, a birthday party for somebody when the, the like president or guy. And a black performer came on stage dressed as a janitor and began to dance to music while sweeping the floor. Uh, Mr. TM got up and left because, you know, that's insane. Uh, another group of the um, the chairman of the board's friends come out and they're all wearing afros. You're like, okay, now we're just being racist. And there were all these other racist moments that he had to contend with. And then he eventually gets ousted because his... Number two, uh, ordered investigators to spy on employees. And like, obviously, you can't do that. And it was one of those things where it was like, this guy has done everything. He's checked every box, been every school, had every experience, da 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 And still, in the highest rooms, people are saying he is a third world kid. And, you know, they're having... I couldn't imagine being at, at that role and having somebody come out dressed as a janitor and doing show tunes. And it was just such a reminder of the legacy institutions in this country. Like being the representative person who breaks through is not is not only not freedom or solidarity. You're still contending with the same thing that that somebody in the not highest levels is dealing with at their job too. And I seeing this, I was like, wow, this is. This is something else. I would love to see um, black banking, like one of the, I don't know. I just, it. I brought this up because I a, didn't, I don't remember this guy. Um, and I was like, you know, he's done all this stuff and still can't escape blackface and Afros at the party. The reason why I remember this is because we, um, we were talking about how black people are brought in to clean up people's messes. And um, the, Credit Suisse was in a like downward spiral at this point, and they hired this dude because he is the best at what he does. And he actually saved Credit Suisse back when he was running. He was there for five years, saved it, brought it out of a spiral. But he was so black and so not Swiss and so whatever. It wasn't even that he was so black. It was that they were so white. They were like, yeah, like we can't have this. And they fired him like your company is drowning. The man saves it and you fire him because he's Black. And this, for all of the people who talk about meritocracy and let markets work and capitalism and blah, 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 it's all a crock. Anti-Blackness running rampant all over the place, even when we are demonstrating our, our most excellent 
uh, performance. Even when we save yo capitalist banks, you still throw us out and make us feel terrible about being Black. I remember this vividly. Um, and I think poo-poo Credit Suisse, you threw out the savior that you had and now here you are getting bought up by UBS. See you soon. It's, it's also just fascinating because it's such a different type of racism. Um, when I was at the State Department, I had to plan an event with the French, like the people of France. And my phone calls with them were so bizarre. By bizarre, I mean racist. And I remember one of the, he's literally like a diplomat. I remember him saying to me, your last name is French. And I was like, yeah, you know, because you know what happened over here, right? And he was... <laughs> In you case so you black. forgot. You so <laughs> like what? Right. <laughs> but it was it but it was it was it's so it's it was so different from American racism, right? It's like we've perfected a very violent, aggressive type of racism here. But in Europe, it is really, really, it's like these fine, fine lines that are so like brilliantly um and meticulously placed in everyday interactions, right? In ways that like, it was even harder to like, like I would, it would sting and I would feel it, but I'm like, what did that just, what, what, what? It, so Can you give I me mean, an example? I'm like curious. And what do you do to push back in that kind of, because I do think you're right that like we are primed for a very in your face racism, you know? It, it was, for ex- okay, so, what we were planning, so we were planning, this is when the earthquake had happened in Haiti um, in 2010. And so we were planning a donors conference in Martinique. So we were bringing Haitian mayors and mayors really from around the world that had gone through some type of like m- major um, natural disaster. Um, and so the French were like our co-hosts in the planning of this. And so we're doing this in Martinique, but because most of the attendants were, uh, participants were Black the approach to it had like a certain like a, a silliness to it. Like that we were we were being silly or we were being um we were being too cautious or we were being too too over prepared around what this thing was gonna look like. And so it just felt like being on the phone with you know, being on the phone with someone who really doesn't care about an event. It's an event they're co-hosting, but like they could care less. Right. And so it was every every way to to sort of under the cuff demean me, demean the, you know, the, my boss at the time who was, who was leading this. Um, So it was just like little things. Like, and I think the last name thing was a thing I remember most vividly because it was like in the middle of a planning, like it was, it, it was such an inappropriate thing to bring up. It wasn't like we had established a relationship. It wasn't like we were being chatty or personal with one another. It was like, oh, so your last name sounds French. It's a very ancient French name. What? What the hell does that mean? Get anywho, you know what I'm saying? It was one of those things that there's like such an air of like <laughs> something I don't even understand that it just was like I don't know. It's probably how Megan was feeling. I should have talked about her so bad, but yeah, it was one of those things <laughs> right. <laughs> that you're just like, what? like it goes over your head. You're like, what did what I happened to me? I apologize, Megan. I I'm get sorry. it now. I get it now. <laughs> that was a that was a what, what a, a text to life connection. You know, it was a, <laughs> I had like a very like I don't know even what to call it, like a micro thought about one of the things that. Uh, I've been 
so I have a, in order to like really explain this well, I have a confession to make. I um I, I've been watching Fox News, and for research purposes, <laughs> <laughs> only and and I watched um after I watched because I was watching like the Jesse Smollett document like documentary, and then after I was watching that, I like watched Roseanne Barr's newest stand up, and. Maybe just because I'm young and even though I've been talking about race and, and power and, 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 and whiteness and blackness and blah, blah, blah for a long time, there's still things that I still, that just like, you know, what does Oprah say? It was, it was an um, aha moment in my head. And she was there doing her stand-up act and she was talking, making her jokes. And so many of the jokes, even though they may have been filled with anti-blackness or anti um uh anti progressive thoughts or whatever so much of it was really about her getting the white liberal uh elites that she felt were getting like that 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 she was attacking and 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 me watching it and i i got hit with strays like really her actual who she was really trying to attack were or who she really cared about were these white liberals and because i was watching it i was getting hit with strays and i thought about this when reading this article was I wonder how much of that stuff would have still happened even if he wasn't there all those racist things would have still happened even if he wasn't there just because their their goal is to maybe make uncomfortable the people the other people who are um forcing them into a more liberal or new way of thinking that they don't want to they want that, that they don't want to um embrace and they're um rebelling against it with these these horrendously like racist acts like that's that's kind of the tension i was like feeling too where i'm like i think this would be happening i don't like i wasn't i he caught he got the mean because he was witnessing it but also i think that would have happened whether he was in the room or not and i think that yes it was also the celebration of it of, of white supremacy but also it was to make other people uncomfortable who were white because they're playing a, this kind of tennis game about where whiteness should go and how it should be seen should it be seen as old conservative and racist or new progressive and quietly racist and that and sometimes you get caught in the in the tennis match of that as a black person and it's about you, but you're just another ball that they're willing to hit. It's you're you're not even seen as an actual um, opponent, even when you're helping the company survive. <laughs> like in this case. Well, thank goodness my news today is on the lighter side. Everyone, it's from the New York Times. Um, it's from a couple of weeks ago, but I came across it a couple of days ago. Um, and for those who don't know, I am obsessed with home interiors, like obsessed. Um, and this was inspired by my granny, Dorothy Black, some of my aunties, Monty Terry, Monty Rita, Monty Chaya. Um, uh, there was always like a religious pride to like what was in the home, what the home looked like, but then also making sure that you did something or took a nice enough photo for somebody, for you to find yourself in one of these homes, right? There was always like a sense of belonging um, in how I grew up, Uh so anyhow, so this, the headline of this is Interior Lives of Black Homes. It's part of like a series in the New York Times in the design section um, for the recent push of diversity in design and how that makes the world look different. The story begins with Helen C. Mabel Acklin, the self-described soul queen of Southern cuisine. Um, so in the, in this in the in the article, there's a photo, and she is on the steps of her Fieldstone house on the south side of Chicago, and she got on black 
Mink, and she looked fabulous. Okay. So it's 1974. This house, which was commissioned in 1965 from the architect Milton M. Schwartz, it was a bold and glamorous um, place to be. Um, So she'd entertained folks like Martin Luther King, Mahalia Jackson, um, Muhammad Ali. Um, And so just to get like a picture of this, so there's she standing there, there's a recessed portico, there are double entrance doors, a sky-lighted shag carpeted living room, which has her baby white grand piano, of course. She died in 2009 and the house remained under her family's ownership until just last year. Bertina Power, who's an author and a real estate broker, was approached and asked when Asked, asked for her professional advice on, on whether to rehab um, rehab the property or sell it. She took one look at the place and said, well, I'm going to buy it. She's um, also a sister. She's a, you know, entrepreneur. And she believed that her owning this house um, was her fate. What she didn't know was the history that went with this house. Um, so the backdrop of this is after decades of neglect, Black interior spaces designed for and by Black homeowners are receiving new attention. They're being documented, analyzed in publications, exhibitions, and research initiatives. Some of the houses aren't as striking as, and as modern as Miss um, Miss Helen's house, but there is such an incredible and deep and rich story of Black people seeking identity and comfort at home. This question of Black aesthetics is ambiguous, according to Denisha Monet Malone, who recently introduced her My Black Home project as part of her PhD research in critical geography studies at Temple. Ms. Malone asked residents in Indianapolis, her former home, to answer the question, if someone were to walk in your home, what element what element of it would make them say, this is a Black home? As I was reading this, I turned to Pow and I said, Pow, do you think our home is a Black home? She said, well, what do you think? I said, well, absolutely. <laughs> Pow is a smart lady. <laughs> what the- hold on. Hold on. Mm. But is, even as is, like- Those are even- lawyers. Even mm-hmm. as we're doing the podcast. I mean, if you look at even our little boxes in our homes, it's like, obviously, oh, eclectic yeah, look, black art. Black. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is fascinating because I got nervous when I, I asked myself, does my home look like a black home? Uh, when I read your article, for sure. <laughs> so... um so Faith Lindsay, who's also a researcher in this space, is like, it's exhilarating to see how people interpret home, right? How their dresser is staged, their kitchen, a wall of memories. Um, they really capture the mundane things that might go unnoticed by someone else. Um, Catherine E. McKinley, who's an author and curator and does, you know, has a book called A Letter from Home. She's working on it. I can't wait to see this book. A Letter from Home, The Art and Science of Black Homemaking. Um, and in this book will be Zenobia Bailey, who amaze. If you all don't know Zenobia Bailey's work, please, please go seek it out. She's an American fine artist, designist, supernaturalist, cultural activist, and fiber artist best known for her like eclectic crochet. Like she makes these massive hats. Terry Atkins, who's an, 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 another American artist, um, 
pioneered the body of work that blends sculpture, sound, performance, video, printmaking. Sun Ra, the musician, jazz composer, amaze. Um, so there's going to be, you know, kind of the household, household objects of all of these folks. Now, the contrast is, is a woman by the name of Sheila Pre-Bright, who did a suburbia portfolio in 2006, which is part of the collection at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. She's an Atlanta-based photographer. She pr- produces work that is stark and uncluttered, airy in the way of typical interior design magazine photography. She's a visual storyteller. And she said when she got to Atlanta, she noticed that so many Black folks were living in the suburbs. And she wanted to highlight that. When she went to publishers, they were like, well, these houses don't look like Black people live in them. Where are the TVs? What? Oh, God, y'all get on my nerves. We got the we got the frame. We got the frame. So my TV looks like art and there's black art on it. And it's only a TV when I turn it on because we on the come up. I'm just saying. There you go. There you go. There you go. Um, You know, so this this article, it's just amazing. Like I could literally just go through the whole thing verbatim. I just was obsessed with it. But I think what what I wanted to highlight around it is just this concept of Black homemaking. And I think it's something that no matter what you have materially, it's such a point of pride and also so visceral of how we appoint things and how we care for things and how we bring who we are into our spaces. And what was also interesting in this is the conversation on modernism and and mid-century design and how that design was meant to keep people out, right? Where we turn that on its head like we often do and we used it to bring people in. So if you looked at, you know, Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine, interiors and designs were always meant to include include and um, and just exude um, community. So I just thought this piece was fascinating and and really highlights how much of a role we just play in our destinies. Like no matter what is happening out in the world and what is oppressing us and all of that, it's just these something as simple as making whatever you can beautiful in your way, how critical that's been to us as a culture and how and how strong of a culture we have in that. So I hope you all enjoy this one. It's just, I thought it was fabulous. I'm obsessed with this article. I, As you were speaking, um, of course, I was listening to you, but also I was buying the book that was listed here called Afro Chic. Afro spelled with a P-H, Chic. And I'm so excited to get it. It's going to be delivered tomorrow. This is one of the most important things to me because I feel like when it comes to owning, feeling at home someplace, that was just not a freedom that was given to a lot of Black people. And before... Like, you can ask my boyfriend, when we moved in here, we had boxes, and everything was literally decorated, maybe within the first 40 hours, 48 hours that we came, because I was like, no, I have to feel, part of me feeling like I'm planting roots in a space is me decorating it, me um, coming up with, like, concepts. It's an extremely ancestral, even spiritual experience for me to be in Brooklyn, be in Flatbush, be in this um, rent control apartment and have each bedroom kind of speak towards who I am. And even like, as I'm sitting here, this is like the smallest room in um, in the apartment, but 
I have um, uh, pictures of myself juxtaposed with pictures from the um, 1940s, but then also I have like a little Kim Harcourt rug and I have a TLC uh, picture frame that's outside of the frame. And those things are so intentional because I really wanted to feel um, consumed, devoured by the colors and the culture and the family ancestry that I grew up with. And I feel like we don't talk about that enough. And I love looking through the pictures that they did provide and seeing how many of those, like I just got a little fuzzy feeling because I have how many of those spaces look like my space. And it feels like even though I didn't know this existed, there is this other frequency that we're all on when it comes to creating our homes and, and making so it does feel like a black home. And sometimes the things aren't as blatant as, you know, a racist trouble like where's the TVs? So, the the so there there's there's other things that you just intuitively intuitively feel where you're like oh I know the black person and the history of this black person who lives here and then also the last thing that I'll say is I was looking at these homes and I'm like, well, child definitely dreamed about living in the sky and wanting this penthouse or whatever. Is that a lot of times at least in in my home, the homes of Black people is also aspirational. So you can also see the dreams of where that person wants to go and where you want where, where that person wants to um, land. And I think that is such a beautiful thing where you could step in somebody's home and see their past, but then also see where they're trying to manifest their future and the tension between that and then working it out through design. I love, 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 love this article, this topic. Could talk about it forever. <laughs> Um, thanks for bringing us, Ciara. This was really interesting to me um, for a couple reasons. The main reason is um, it points to, like, we've talked a lot about the humanization of Black people. Like, we don't see pictures of Black people recreating. We don't see pictures of Black people's homes because the larger society doesn't want you to think that we're normal, that we value interior design. You pick up an interior design book. Like I bought, I don't know what it was, uh, somebody's, I'm sure it was Architectural Digest. I'm sure. Right. Never bought Architectural Digest before, but I bought it because Viola Davis's um, house was on the cover and I wanted to see her house. Right. Like they don't show our homes. They don't, they, and it is a real clear um, assault on black society to say, you know, you live different than we live and your life, your homes, your interiors, your spaces are not worthy of our time and attention. And so reclaiming that narrative and showing Black um, homes, I think, is an important step in the continued evolution of Black people in America. So thank you for that. Um, And I do remember like in the Ebony and the Jet, you would see people's you know, stuff. And then like your people would be like, oh, we got to go get a couch like, you know, Janet Jackson or we got right like totally aspirational. Yes, indeed. And so I I really appreciate that. I also, like I said, you know, when I saw the question, like if somebody walked in your home when they know it was black, I literally was like, I think so. Um, and I was like, you know what? I got to make this space a little more black. Right. And so I have a friend who is an amazing Um, she's an educator, but interior design is her side passion. And she posts pictures of her, um, of her home 
online all the time. And it is show enough black. And the last time she posted something, I was like, girl, I got to get you over here because we got to rework some of this space. I needed to be blacker. And this just reminded me, I need to call her today because we going to chocolate up this thing even more than what it currently is because um, that makes me feel comfortable. And then that made me think about the tension, right? between having Black spaces. And, you know, we've covered a lot on the podcast about these like home appraisals, right? That when you want to sell your house and maximize your asset, if the house looks too Black, you're going to get a, a an undervalued assessment, right? And so this tension between living the way we want to live and and using the master's tools to get ahead, right? Real estate, a house is the American dream. You can sell your house and leverage whatever. That our blackness and our living black actually works against us in that. So this brought up a host of issues for me, and I ain't scared. I'm about to blacken it up a little bit more, and after I do, we gonna have a little pod save the people party um, right down here in Northeast DC in my mo, okay. mo black house. <laughs> okay, more black, more better. <laughs> Because that's what it is. Okay. Um, My news this week is about the continued assault on women by the Republican Party. Sorry to end on a low note, y'all, but you got to know what's going on out in the place. It's ridiculous what is happening. I mean, we thought it was the end of the world when, you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And these Republicans continue to show us that, uh, nope, it ain't over. Just when you thought, uh, it couldn't get worse. It is getting worse. Um, Ron DeSantis is pushing, um, I guess, a bill that will uh, prohibit young ladies in elementary school from uh, talking about their period. Um, I guess you can talk about it from sixth grade through 12th grade, but God forbid you get your period in third or fourth or fifth grade, which many of our young women do. You can't talk about it in school. Um, there's an Oklahoma woman who was convicted of manslaughter because she had a miscarriage. Um, and Oklahoma has sentenced her to four years in jail. Um, and so, you know, terrible to have a miscarriage and to go through that trauma, but then to get convicted and go to jail because of that is a whole nother thing. And then South Carolina, in an effort to not be outdone, um, their Republican lawmakers have proposed um, the death penalty for women who have abortions. Yes, the death penalty. In the South Carolina Prenatal Equal Protection Act of 2023, it makes a person who gets an abortion eligible for the death penalty by making a fertilized egg a quote unquote person. And so that egg now has equal protection under homicide laws, and they are pushing. Um, to prosecute, well, they are pushing to pass this bill, which will allow them to prosecute women who have abortions. There is an exception for mothers who are facing imminent threat of death or great bodily injury, but there is no exception for rape or incest. Um, These are the people who are supposed to be pro-life, right? So they're going to kill people, kill mothers, people who make life um, if they don't have the babies that they want them to have or whatever. Like, I, I don't get this. This, it, it continues a trend of laws in Republican-led states that limit, not only limit access to abortion, but they punish people um, 
since the fall of Roe v. Wade. Um, 18 states have imposed near or total abortion bans. And um, yeah, it just does not stop. I, I will honestly say um, I, I am, I, I'm trying to connect the dots because none of these things are unrelated, all of these things taken together, right? Like if you can, we were talking about this, these lighthouse moments where if you can get one thing here or one thing there, the Republicans have been quite adept at taking that thing and then running the playbook through a bunch of other states. And so I think you'll, you know, if they can get this in South Carolina, then coming to a Republican led state near you will be the death penalty for anybody who gets abortions. You know, it's the Texas judge who is about to make a decision that will um, impede the abortion drug for the entire um, for the entire country, right? And 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 so this like full frontal assault on women, women's bodies, women's agency and freedom. Um, I I am I I I want to know Republican women what what are y'all out here doing? What what's going on? What what is this? Um, we knew it was coming. Again, like I can't watch, um, oh Lord, what's the series on Hulu that I have? The Handmaid's Tale. I had to stop watching The Handmaid's Tale because this is the like lead up right to The Handmaid's Tale, which we never thought could happen, but is about to happen. And so I'm bringing this to the pod because like, you know, we have to keep a watchful eye on all of these things and connect the dots for what is happening Um around women and women's rights in this country. I don't really have much else to say. Absolutely deplorable. So your um I got question or point. I don't I, I don't uh liken myself to like be able to report on what like conservative Republican women are thinking. But during my Fox News research, a joke about uh the uh these laws um around um women's bodies was made and it was like, well, don't worry because you can't get pregnant because you took the vaccine. So I think that even though that was a joke, I think that that actually says a lot around the cognitive dissonance that uh conservative women, Republican women are willing to um, adapt in order to make sure that the pe- the men who they're running with or re- remain in power or get more power or accumulate more power <laughs> is that you just make up these lies and these tropes in your head that totally um, make it all right, whatever is going on, and make it not that serious. And it's that serious. I think that that's, I think that a lot of times we're seen as like overreacting when we say, um, when, when when we talk about things like this or we see we seem um like we're just um exaggerating something but it's no it's really that serious and law by law things are being taken taken away so we are going to be looking like the handmaid's tale and you have to take the first thing just as serious as the 100th thing or before you know it you're in something where can can between the Jim Crow thing in the Mississippi and this I'm like oh we're going to law by law have just as many laws as we did in 1899. Like that's where, that's where things are going, like going if we don't take every single step seriously that they're taking to just annihilate rights. Miles, I think you're so right. Cause what was in my mind and what has been in my mind is just the narrative around this country and how it's a country of democracy and freedom and liberation and manifest destiny. When, when you look at like 
the UN Sustainable Development Report on rankings for women's rights and women's equality, the United States is 38. Belarus is doing better than us. I'm pretty sure Belarus is author authoritarian. Um, we're also only three rungs up above, guess who? Russia. So I think we need to start thinking about how this place isn't as free as the narrative tells us it is. And, 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 and globally, we are doing terribly across so many vectors when it comes to human rights, equality, um, basic, basic human needs for people. So I think Miles back to like it, it, we're, it's, it's not being hysterical. It's actually just like, we need to start beating the drum on. We are doing terrible here and protecting a lot of people. And just because we got movies and, and music and all these things coming out of this country, it's a distraction from actually really what's happening to us here. Diara, I think I think that the thing is we are a country of freedom and democracy and manifest destiny and agency and all of that stuff for white men, but not for anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> not for not for anybody else. So I mean, I say that because like it takes two to make a baby, right? So, so there's some men running around here that are impregnating all of these women who need abortions or whatever the case may be. And there is literally no consequence for them. No anything, no whatever. And, and paying for it. I'm like, are you accessory to a crime? If they, this is they, where we're going with it? <laughs> not a thing. Not a thing. And, you know, all of these, I think, I think that, you know, a lot of this is, is white misogyny's last stand it is, you know, attempts to punish. At first, I mean, punish Black people. We always the first whatever. Minorities generally, women, like, it's, it is, the rage is palpable. And the fact that these people are not even pretending anymore and they're just, in, I mean, abortion, abortion bans are largely unpopular by voters, right? And you see places like Kansas beating them back and whatnot, because this is not what everybody wants, but these white men Republicans are out here lunching. And, you know, as Miles said, like, we're watching these small things happen that seem so ludicrous that we're like, we're not even going to pay attention to this. But those small things end up being the precursors, the foundation of the big things to come later. So... Yeah. Mm. Stay alert. Okay. Decorate your home. Stay alert. Don't be transphobic. <laughs> and put on some Bobby Caldwell to ease your vibes put on some Bobby this Cal- week. <laughs> and, 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 and take your money out of Swiss banks. That is the podcast <laughs> for today. Podcast Boom. recap. Boom. Boom. <laughs> This week, we welcome Daniel Hatcher on the pod to talk about his new book, Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. He formerly worked at Legal Aid and is current professor of law at the University of Baltimore Civil Advocacy Clinic. In the book, he talks about how juvenile, family, and criminal justice systems thrive on monetizing inequity and harms struggling youth and families. You have to, have to listen to this episode. Make sure you buy the book. It really is that good. Let's go.
Professor Hatcher, I, it is an honor to have you today on Piety of the People. This is one of the books that I uh, that I read and I was like, wow, I did not need it to read this. I remember stumbling across you on Twitter being like, can we make this happen? I know you probably thought we were never going to do it because we were slow to get you on, but we got you here and it's an honor to have you. D-Ray, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show and have this conversation. So let's start. I have a million questions about what's in the book, but before we get there, how did you get to this topic? Did you always care about the criminal justice system? Did something happen to you that like caused you to care? Did you always know you wanted to be a professor? Did you stumble into that? Like what's, how'd you get here? Uh, well, it's a good question. A bit of a long answer, but I'll try to shorten it. You know, I, I've been uh, an advocate for low-income children and impoverished adults for over 25 years. Um, I went to law school with in mind that I wanted to do public interest law. I wasn't really sure what that meant um, at the time. And, and um, although I believed in, in equal and impartial justice at the time and, and, the, and, this, and the need to fight for social justice, wasn't really sure what it meant. Right. So my eyes have been opened um, quite a bit as I've learned through my clients and, and through my students over the years. So my, my first job um, after after law school and working in the public interest was representing children pulled into the highly dysfunctional Baltimore foster care system. And I was overwhelmed by it. You know, like, you know, the, the number of youth I, w- I was trying to represent and, and their individual stories um, and then, you know, realizing that it's not just their individual struggles and their parents' struggles, the very systems that are intended to serve them with welfare and justice are instead monetizing them. Okay. Now that is, it's almost like I set you up because that's what I have a million questions about. So there were some parts of this that I was like, okay, already knew that. Good to see it in the written word, but knew it. And then there were parts about foster care, family court, child support that I heard people talk about with sort of extracting profit from people. But I like, mm, there wasn't a there there that I could touch. Could you first tell us uh, what the premise of the book is, and then let's go into wherever you want to start in terms of family court, foster care, child support. Of those three, that's where I like to start in terms of issues. But the premise of the book, what were you? What, what was the goal? Sure. Well, and it built from my last book. My, my first book was titled The Poverty Industry, and that book really exposes how our human service agencies are often partnering private companies to turn vulnerable populations, children and adults, into revenue tools. This book, you know, I fear is even more concerning as I'm exposing that our very systems of justice, right, are turning low-income children and adults into revenue tools. And not just, um, there's not just disproportionate harm that, that's uncovered. The harm is being monetized. And our, our justice institutions, from our, our juvenile courts to our family courts to our um, prosecutors' offices to our probation departments, policing agencies—all of them are increasingly looking for ways to shift from their intended mission of maximizing equal and impartial justice to instead almost running like a factory, right? Using those that they're supposed to serve, right, and instead maximizing efficiency and revenue. You can almost visualize a factory assembly line. Right. But it's almost instead of a, an assembly line, more like a disassembly line. And you have already struggling individuals who are then deconstructed for every possible penny. 
And the most striking, I think, example that that I found, and it is also symbolic, are, are out of Ohio and in multiple states where the book uncovers how juvenile courts are actually entering contracts to generate revenue from child removals. Um, children who might be pulled into the system through the juvenile delinquency side, right? And the courts literally contract to generate revenue from those removals. I can talk about that in a little more detail, but but that's the that's the unfortunate um, theme uh, of the book. Okay, let's uh, the book broke down so many things. So let's start at the let's start at the basics. Uh, what is family court for for people who like? don't know, how would you explain what family court is? Sure. Well, in different jurisdictions, it's a variety of things, but it's typically in the foundational courts that I call them are are what are often referred as lower level courts. The family courts for low income individuals often involve um, juvenile issues, including child welfare, the foster care proceedings, and then child support, right, is, is the biggest part. You know, when we get into a discussion of child support, child support proceedings, most individuals don't realize that in this country, there are really two systems of child support. You have um, the courts for the, for the better off individuals where you might have parents who were married and they're, and they're pursuing a divorce and they might be dividing property, multiple houses, you know, figuring out dividing the child support, who's going to pay for college and the like. Um, these aren't the courts for the poor when you're dealing with the child support 4D courts, right, which brings in Title 40 child support agencies. Those courts are solely focused on establishing paternity, right, and more of a forced system in which parents are often literally required to participate. If you have a low-income custodial parent who temporarily needs um, public assistance, she or he is required to um, not just name the, the absent parent and through that process of, of establishing a paternity if it's the custodial mother, right? But then to sue that individual over and over again for something called child support, but that isn't owed to the children is to pay back the cost of welfare, referred to welfare cost recovery. And this practice dates Wait, back slow to- Wait, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow yeah. down. Give, give an example. When I read this in the book, I was like, you are lying. Okay, wait, <laughs> but like, give us an example. Sure. Um, so in that example, um, like I talk about a, a foster child by the name of Sean um, in the book, and Sean is simultaneously real and hypothetical. He's a dollar sign for the S because he becomes a commodity. Um, the juvenile court could first contract to generate revenue literally from removing Sean from his home through a foster care contract. And I could talk about that a little more. But then that same court and the family court, as you described, um, may have an additional contract to generate more revenue through pursuing child support against the, the low-income mother, Sean's low-income mother, from whom the court just ordered the removal of Sean. So the court could order essentially the foster care proceedings for Sean to remove from, from his home, generate revenue through that process, and then pursue the absent parent for more, right, and to pursue um, federal Title IV-D funds. And meanwhile, so, the, the mother is just struggling. I have a question. So this would be suing, essentially asking the mom to incur a fee for the fact that her child was removed from the home. That's right. That, that it's forcing the um, parent who's already struggling, you know, desperately trying to reunify with with his or her son, right, or, or daughter, 
um, now to pay back the cost of foster care, right? You know, while the child is being monetized, right? Now the parent and the parent's harm is being monetized and making it even harder for that reunification process to take place. Um, and, and that's just scratching the surface, right? And then prosecutors come into play and their, and their contractual revenue schemes and probation departments, policing agencies and the like. Blew my mind. Is, when did you realize that parents are being charged for their kids being taken? Like, do you remember the day you were like, what? Right. Well, uh, uh, that dates back to my early years as a legal aid lawyer, both representing children and adults um, in the system. You know, when I was representing children pulled into the system, it's it's um, it's, again, overwhelming to to um, experience through them, you know, all all their struggles. But then to realize that the systems right are then that are supposed to serve them are often using them Um, and. The the first example that I that I came across in my research and advocacy, um, it's been since about 2004 uh, now that that I've been researching and writing about that, where um, foster care agencies will literally pursue children in their care who are either disabled or have dead parents, right, and then pursue their survivor benefits or disability benefits and take those resources from the very children in their care. You know, so you have the, the state foster care agencies that literally the only reason they exist is supposed to be to serve and protect, right? Children, right. Are going after those children's assets and taking them from children, you know, and that, you know, led to additional research and looking at the child support um, program and how much of child support um, is not even owed to children, you know, uh, huge percentages in California, it's up to 40 percent, right, of the total child support debt is actually owed to the government to repay where they're pursuing the poor parents to repay the cost of welfare and foster care, harming everyone in the process. Let's uh, let's put a let's put a line in before we transition to child support so that we can, like, make sure people get and by people, I mean me, make sure that we get the foster care part. OK, so recouping it. And the idea that the state is is working to take the assets of foster care kids wild. Now, what would you say to people, though, who would say that it, it costs money to administer these welfare programs, right? That, like, it's not free and that somebody has to pay up. What would you say to people who are like, I get it. It might not be great, but, like, you know, you should have to pay something. What do you say to those people? Does that make sense? Sure. Uh, I, you know, at first... the the children aren't choosing to be pulled into foster care, right? Nor are their parents choosing for their children to be taken into the child welfare system. So we start from that, right? And then these agencies, they're supposed to be funded from federal funds and state funds, um, right? They exist for the sole reason of serving the best interest of vulnerable youth. Um, They don't exist to extract resources from those vulnerable youth. So under federal law and state law, they're required when when children are removed from their homes to provide and pay for, right, those those services, not the kids, right? So I've argued on that particular issue, it's both immoral and and illegal, right? And I think there are strong claims and it's just nonsensical, right? When you have an agency that exists to serve a population as as actually taking resources from that population, right? It's it's counter- intuitive. So, but then you could have an agency like the foster care agency, not just pursuing and taking resources from Sean or or another child, as I described in the book, 
right? Then they may also use Sean through this contract. And, you know, like, so in the way that works, I think is even potentially more concerning because the court, the juvenile courts in these examples literally contract to become the foster care agency, right? And, you know, and so then what they do, that's like the first they put on their court hat, adjudicate a child delinquent. That allows them to put on their contractual foster care agency hat, remove a child from the home, right? Or um, label a child as foster care candidate at constant risk of removal and processing. The court shifts and puts back its court hat back on again and rules on its own actions, right? And then if it rules on itself favorably, it can draw down millions of Title IV-E revenue, funds from the federal government that are supposed to go to foster care agencies that the courts have tapped into. They're, they're, they're monetizing vulnerable youth. We're going to come back to foster care. Let's go to, um, I'm telling you, this is why I was like, we got to get him on the podcast. I got to learn. I got to learn. Okay. Um, what? Let's talk about child support. So m- many people would say, you know, if you have a kid, there's a financial responsibility. Some people, mostly men, don't want to uh, live up to that responsibility. And that without the child support system, kids and mothers would go without resources to provide for kids. That would be a, you know, I could call my aunt. She would probably say that. And I've heard people say, well, foster care is exploitative. I mean, not foster care. Child support is exploiting people and da da da. And the way that I've heard people talk through that is sort of explaining why men don't want to pay, right? And, or that the, the amount that they were given as a percentage of their income is too high. This is certainly the story that you see when you see celebrities go through the child support thing. It's like, why does so-and-so need da 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 da? Like, uh, but your take on it is something different. So I wanted you to help us understand why you think about child support, not as a program that is actually supporting kids and moms, but is exploiting people. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's a good description. I think most people, when they consider child support, they're, they're responding what they hear in the news and stories of celebrities and the like, right, where you have individuals who are better off. Uh, and the stories of, of non-payment and when, and when an obligation has been ordered. Um, when you talk about low-income families, this is often a forced system. So it actually comes, the, the, the 4D child support system, which, which is this agency-driven child support system in America, comes from old English poor laws and what were called bastardy acts early on, where, where parents who had children that were referred out of wedlock were literally criminalized. Um, for having having children born out of wedlock and forced to post bonds. Um, custodial mothers were literally jailed, right, if they didn't have that money, right, in order to indemnify the town from the potential risk of low-income children, right? That early um, structure grew into what our current child support is, system is, the 4D system in America still. Um, much of the 4D system, it started with this purpose of recovering costs, of forcing poor individuals to pay back the cost of any public assistance they received or foster care, right? When, when that happens, then that's still a big part of the program. But but even now, when when you have this agency-driven system um, and that pulls in mostly low-income families across the country, most of the families pulled into the 4D system are poor. Um, even when the money is owed to the custodial parent, if the Order is set as a level at a level that's that's not manageable, right? And then the enforcement tools are punitive rather than helpful for the children. Harm results, 
right? So you can, if you just look at the garnishment amount, what happens after a child support order, you know, if you're a low income obligor um, who, who may be trying um, his or her best to, to pay this child support obligation, right? And if he or she is able to find above ground employment, or right, is lucky enough, you know, uh, you know, after the struggle to find work, um, the garnishment amount you know, uh, and immediately is, is going to be 65%, right, of the wages. So the vast majority of people, once that hits, you can't afford, you can't afford to pay rent, you can't afford to buy food, right? So it's at such a level that it harms rather than helps. Um, licenses are suspended. So then the absent parent can't drive to work, can't drive to help with the children, drive the children to daycare, drive the children to school, right? Their credit is destroyed in the process. Many end up being sent to prison, you know, like because of criminal non-support proceedings, which then adds to their criminal record, which makes it even harder to find jobs. So it becomes, um, you know, a, a cyclical process of harm you know, that's already happening. So you have this, this harmful structure for many low-income parents. And then we realize the courts are literally contractually monetizing that harm, right? You know, I've seen contracts where courts and the child support um, proceedings will, will contract with the executive branch state agency, the child support agencies. And the, and the, the language of the contracts, the child support agencies are literally buying court orders, Right. You know, and they're paying the salaries of the judicial magistrates they appear before. That's in some of the jurisdictions. In Pennsylvania, the family courts, as we we're discussing before, contract to become the child support agency while they're operating as the courts. Right. So, again, you have this nonsensical violation of separation of, of powers that, that's happening. And it's all about generating revenue rather than serving the children's best interests. So what do you say, though? I could see people hearing that and being like, well, the guys you know, participated in the act of having a kid, right? They didn't, like, randomly have a kid. And why should they be off the hook? That, like, 65%, like, kids are, you know, raising a kid is expensive in America. And without some sort of forced accountability, kids and moms will go without the resources to you know, provide for the kid, especially in the earliest years. What do you say to that? Sure. Well, you know, and in the book, I'm not arguing against having a child support obligation, right? You know, simply that when you have any type of process where the court is involved and the agencies involved, you know, two institutions, the human service agencies intended to maximize welfare, the courts intended to maximize justice, that needs to be the mission, right? In this case, the best interests of children wrapped up into that. So um, you need a careful deliberation of the facts and obligation to make sure the proceedings only serve that goal of maximizing the children's best interest, welfare, and then, and then justice. Instead, what you see is this combination of punitive actions that make it difficult, if not sometimes impossible, you know, for the obligor to be able to pay um, the support obligation, harming the obligor, harming the custodial parent, and harming the child. Um, and the like. And meanwhile, from that harm, the justice institute institution is actually making money through contracts incentivized. Right. I've seen contracts related to the, the more orders they, they order, the more um, cases they process, the more enforcement mechanisms they use. The court is going to pull in more revenue. And then same with the prosecutor, sometimes probation offices and the like. It's not supposed to be about money from, from the justice institutions, right? It's supposed to be about serving that best interest of the child. 
Do you, is there good advocacy around this sort of highlighting this and changing the laws or, or is it something that people are only now starting to acknowledge as an issue? Um, well, I, I think there's growing attention, not nearly enough, you know, and I think uh, any needed change starts with awareness, right? You know, so your show couldn't be more important, you know, in terms of the issues that you take on and discuss both, both yourself and with people that you have on the show. I mean, that starts all of us to understand the problem. And if we're going to move forward towards solutions, we have to understand the problem first. If we're going to try to work towards a fix, it's got to be the right fix, Right. You know, so that's crucial. Um, And you're seeing on some issues, you know, like with um, the issues with child support, some hopeful improvement. Um, I've worked with advocates on that issue and also on the issue of foster children, survivor benefits and their disability benefits. And over years, including um, hearing from the voice of former foster youth. Right. We're starting to see some states move in the right direction to protect foster use resources instead of taking them, but it hasn't gone nearly far enough um, in, in that way. So, so, so the more we can expand awareness, the better. Okay. Let's talk about probation. So one of the things sure. that you also argue is that probation is essentially exploiting people. So for listeners, remember probation is often a consequence in lieu of incarceration. Parole is uh, the, the slicing off of some of a sentence to uh, serve in community that looks very much like probation. Um, now, Professor Hatcher, one of the things that people will say is that, you know, people should be thankful for work work programs and community service things, stuff like that, because if not for, you know, this anklet thing or this home detention or community service, you'd be in jail. Like some, you did something wrong, you got a consequence and probation, even if it's not, you know, a pleasant experience for you is much better than jail. I could hear people saying that, and you are arguing that it is exploiting people. How would, how do you frame this in the context of what most people sort of believe today? Sure. And it's, you know, it's an excellent description and and question. Um, So many people do view probation as part of the solution to mass incarceration, right? And the years, the history of, of harm, the highly disproportionate harm based upon race that's been happening with mass incarceration. But what we what we see then, you know, through through the research of my book and the research of others, is unfortunately probation has grown into a business of itself. It's a huge part of the factory that's monetizing rather than serving. Um, if you just look at, you know, I discuss in the book one county in Los Angeles County, where it itself sort of brags about how big it is, you know, as as a company, the Los Angeles Probation Department um, has more than 6,600 employees providing services to 57,000 adult probationers and more than 12,000 juveniles with an annual budget of 852 million, right? So that's a big, you know, branch of the factory, you know, that's operating. And what you see with with probation, uh, unfortunately, are multiple ways in which they're, again, using um, the low-income individuals, children and adults, to generate revenue rather than serving them with both welfare and equal and impartial justice. One of the ways is, again, is, is through drawing down these foster care funds um, in California and Texas and in multiple states across the country. Probation departments are contractually pursuing the foster care revenue, right? Even though it's called foster care, they're pursuing this revenue from children who are pulled into the system through the juvenile delinquency side. 
right, through juvenile justice. Um, but then if probation takes control and places them in a certain type of facility or labels them as a foster care candidate at constant risk of removal. Um, and then all the monitoring that comes along with that, you know, you could be talking about ankle monitors, right, constant drug testing, required therapy, classes, right, unannounced visits. It goes on and on. Probation officers wield a lot of power, right? And it's not surprising, unfortunately, we see individualized stories around the country of abuse of that power. But here we're not just talking about individual abuse. We're talking about the whole probation system monetizing the youth. And, and again, in just one county in, in California, in Orange County, in just one year through these contracts, the, the probation department pulled in $5.77 million um, in foster care revenue. I saw a training slide um, from these offices in California for the probation officers, right, on how to fill out reports, essentially, to make sure they're maximizing this foster care revenue. And one of them even said, like, there was a listed as a bad example where they listed all is okay, right? You know, and all is okay is not okay from their view because it means the money stops, right? They're advised, they're trained how you got to provide bad information on these reports in order to keep pulling down the revenue. Then probation is not just through the foster care funds that they pursue. I've also found contractual examples. They're pulling in this child support revenue, same way, and then endless fines and fees, right? There in some jurisdictions in our countries, entire probation offices, all they do is pursue fines and fees. So in that example, you could have a court that orders an initial small fine for maybe $500 from a misdemeanor, from something as, as small as a traffic ticket, right? But that quickly balloons into thousands of dollars after interest and more fees are tapped onto that, right? Uh, collection costs are tapped onto that. Um, and then the probation departments, when they're involved in this, while they're pursuing this debt for someone who can't afford to pay, right, they're adding additional fees. They're ordering additional um, conditions and services go to training classes that the people have to pay for, right? You know, building that debt even more. And then those probation departments in many states will actually require as a condition of probation, the full payment of that debt that is unaffordable to the individual, right? So it literally creates a situation where the people can't get out of probation. If they have to pay off um, a growing unaffordable debt that the probation department keeps adding to, and the probation department is making money from, right? The people can't escape. It becomes an inescapable cycle of monetized poverty. People need to buy this book. They need to read it. There's more about sheriffs and, and the rest of the system. We don't have time to talk about it all, but I hope this is a great teaser for people. Let me ask you two questions that we ask everybody. The first is, what do you say to people whose hope is challenged in moments like this? People who you know, feel like they read your book, read mine, listened to the podcast, they emailed, they testified, they were in the street, and they're like, the world hasn't changed in the way I want it to. What do you say to those people? Right. Well, and, and you write about hope, right? You know, and I, and I, I believe in hope, and I, I still, you know, even all the the struggles I've encountered through my clients individually and, and you know, what I expose in the book and, and sort of the systemic failings of our systems, I still believe in the ideals of pursuing equal and impartial justice, right? And I feel like we have to have hope and, and pursue those ideals because if we don't, you know, if we're not pursuing that, that ideal, those ideals, they tend to be replaced by their opposites, right? You know, so the, so the fight continues and, and our fight is connected to those who fought before us and those who are fighting after us. 
right? So, so we're connected. Um, and, you know, I've seen some hope for improvement. Um, again, even through the voices of former foster youth themselves, you know, are standing up and having a voice involved in the legislative process and working for change. Um, um, I've worked with other advocates and, and on this issue of agencies taking resources from children in their care. Now over 10 states are moving in the right direction. Um, I worked on a, a bill in Maryland um, that is a partial success. I think we might need to revisit it and approve on that bill. But that was working with um, Jamie Raskin when he was a state senator and now a member of Congress. Um, change is possible, but we have to keep striving to increase awareness and strive for that ideal. Um, I also think those of us in the justice system, like we need that mirror of uh, that honest mirror of self-reflection, right? To be both be righting our own wrongs. But then I think even if, if you a judge, um, a lawyer who's an officer of the court, a prosecutor, probation officer, policing officer, if they're trying their individually best to be true to their ethics, right, and their mission of equal justice, right, if they're working within a system that's structurally compromised, both eth- ethically and constitutionally, then their ethics are, co- are constitutionally compromised and ethically compromised. You can't just be working to approve yourself. Right. You have to be working to prove the systems on which we're operating. Boom. And the last thing is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've been given that's always stuck with you? Um, well, be true. Right. You know, like, you know, we, we have to. And that means a lot. Um, it means to be true to ourselves and, and you know, what drives us, you know, because I, I, I write a lot about this tension you know, with with agencies and, and institutions that might have agencies that exist to serve also seek to exist, right? And you see that same tension with nonprofits, right, as well. You can see that individually. If I write a book, am I, am I trying to help expose and, and address and help the cause or am I using the cause to help myself, right? And that tension exists out there and we have to make sure to be, again, honest in our self-reflection and make sure we're on the right side of that tension, Right. And what I've uncovered it in the book, unfortunately, is our justice institutions, our human service agencies, they're on the wrong side of that tension and immense harm is resulting. Where can people go to stay in touch with you? Is it a website? Is it Twitter? Is it Facebook? How do people stay up to date with what you're doing? Sure. Multiple ways. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Poverty Law Prof. Um, I have a faculty website. Just Google my name, Daniel Hatcher, at the University of Baltimore. My contact information and email um, are all there. And, and I would love people to reach out if they're encountering this, these issues, if they have ideas about how to work for change. I'd love to brainstorm with them. We need collaboration. Boom. And can you uh, just remind us of the name of the book one more time? The name of the book is Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. Y'all, go get the book. Professor Hatcher, honor to be here today. You rock. It's an honor to be with you, Duray. I can't thank you enough. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.